Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. My name is Craig Hadley and I am a pastor here at Paradox Church. Paradox began about five years ago and we meet in Redlands, California, but we also have a bustling online community. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, welcome. I'm glad that you are here. I have to tell you one thing that's different about Paradox than other churches is that at Paradox, we design sermons to start discussions and not end them. This sermon is by no means meant to be the authoritative word on Jesus and the crucifixion, which is the topic that we are studying today because we are starting our Easter series and today's sermon is entitled The Death of God. As the pastor of Paradox Church, one of the most common questions I get is why is the church named Paradox? To that question, I'm going to offer a complicated answer and then a simple answer. The complicated answer is that we named the church Paradox because spiritual maturity requires one to accept and embrace the paradoxes of reality rather than seek to resolve the paradoxes of reality. For instance, Jesus Christ is always found where religion says that Jesus cannot be. So we are called to journey toward the places where religion says God cannot be there so that we might go there and find God. Once we grow in our awareness of how personal and intimate God is, we simultaneously discover just how much bigger and transcendent God is at the same time. We named the church Paradox to invite people to love the questions more than the answers. And that is the complicated answer. The simple answer to this question is that we name the church Paradox because in the Christian story, God dies. That is what we call a paradox. And the paradox of God's death is central to the Christian faith, which is why the universal symbol of the church is the cross. If anyone ever asks you, why did they name that church Paradox? The easy answer to give them is because God dies. And then let that sit in the air for a moment. Because we're not talking about the death of Superman here. We're talking about the death of God. And yes, I've read ahead. I know how the story ends. I know there will be an empty tomb on Sunday. And the empty tomb is also an essential part of the Christian story. Today, we are starting a three-part podcast series called Resurrection Weekend. Two weeks from today, I will discuss the resurrection of Sunday. Next week, I'll speak about the grave of Saturday. But today, I'm preaching about the cross of Friday. The cross is the central paradox of the Christian faith. Because this is the moment when God dies. Now, the dominant story of Christianity is that human beings were born into a sinful world. From the moment all of us emerge from a vagina and take our first breath, God looks down on us in judgment and declares us to be guilty of sin. This verdict comes with a heavy punishment, death. This means that when my son Bodhi was born, Christians would declare that he was immediately guilty and deserves the death penalty. 
Bodhi, even as a newborn, is in need of a savior. And he is not alone because every human being who is born, which is all of us, is in need of a savior because we are human. Fortunately, God provides the savior by sending God's only son to earth. Now, while Christianity will disagree on why Jesus needed to die on the cross, the dominant religious narrative insists that Jesus needed to die in order to pay a debt for the sins of all humanity. Some Christians say he needed to pay a debt to satisfy the wrath of God, while other Christians say he needed to pay a debt that was owed to the devil. Either way, Jesus died on the cross to pay the universal debt of humanity's sin. Three days after the crucifixion of Christ, Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared first to women and then to men. He then ascended into heaven with a promise to return. And if you accept Jesus Christ into your heart today and ask for him to stand in your place for the sins that you have committed, then God will declare you innocent on judgment day at the end of time. This innocence will offer you access into heaven where you will be granted eternal life and the opportunity to be reunited with all of your loved ones. However, Christians say, if you do not accept Jesus as your personal savior, or if you are an atheist, or worse, according to some Protestants, Catholic, well, then you receive the punishment you deserved all along, which is death at best and eternal torture at worst. And this message compels Christians to go out today and to tell the world you should love Jesus or else. This is a brief overview of the story of Christianity, according to the majority of Christianity here in America today. Now, the world hears this narrative and has all kinds of questions. Namely, what constitutes acceptable belief in Jesus in order to avoid eternal torture in hell? <laughs> Wait, someone from the world may object. What happens if I'm an atheist for my whole life? To which a Christian would emphatically respond, hell happens. Okay, the Inquisitor accepts, but then offers another question. What if I'm an atheist for 80 years, my whole life, but two days before I die, I accept Jesus as my personal savior? Oh, says the Christian, then you go to heaven. This may sound like a radical theological jump, but the Christian world, most likely, would justify this theology by telling you Christ's parable about the laborers in the vineyard. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells of a landowner who needed to hire day laborers to work in his vineyard. So the landowner gets up at the crack of dawn and offers the usual daily wage for anyone who is willing to work in his field. Some people accept, and they start to work the land. Three hours later, the landowner realizes he needs more hands. So he goes back into town and offers to pay anyone who is willing to work for him a fair wage. Some more people accept, and they join the other laborers in the vineyard. At noon, the landowner realizes that they are behind. So the landowner hires more hands and, once again, offers to pay them what is fair. After hearing this offer, more people accept and head to the vineyard to get to work. At 3 o'clock, the landowner recruits even more laborers and even more people accept and join the workforce in the vineyard. At 5 o'clock, just one hour before sundown, the landowner brings even more workers into the vineyard for a final push for the day.
At 6 o'clock, the work is done. The landowner lines every laborer up. And regardless of whether they started work at 6 in the morning or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he pays all of them the same wage. And this monetary amount was the equivalent for a full day's work. Christians interpret this parable in a way that the vineyard is the work of the church, the wages represent heaven, and the laborers are human beings. According to this interpretation, some spend their entire lives living in faith while others join in at the last minute, but everyone gets the same reward if they participate in this work, and that reward is heaven. For most Christians, the parable of the vineyard illustrates that it is never too late for one to accept Christ's sacrifice. In my lifetime, I sat through numerous sermons from pastors who confidently claimed that anyone, anywhere, could give their life to Christ at the last second before their death, and regardless of all the collective behavior of their lifetime, they could still be deemed as worthy of being saved. If you grew up in the church like me, my guess is you've heard this sermon connected to this parable multiple times as well. But you know what sermon I haven't heard? A sermon that discusses the exact opposite of this scenario. While most Christians speak about how it's never too late for one to turn to Christ, very few Christians discuss that the flip side of this theology is that it is never too late to turn away from Christ. Let's return to our hypothetical conversation between the skeptic and the believer, and assume that the believer has just told the skeptic about the parable of the vineyard. Okay, okay, our atheist friend says, what if I'm a Christian for 80 years, but two days before I die, I renounce my faith and say, God isn't real. I picture a Christian hearing this question with a look of utter betrayal on their face. After a minute, I imagine this Christian responding with, well, why would you do that? As if the thought had never crossed the Christian's mind before. So the atheist answers, what if I had just a miserable disease that caused all sorts of pain and anguish? So much so that this pain caused me to hate life. This hatred led me to wish I had never been born. So I curse God's name and I die two days later. What would happen to me in that scenario? After some hesitancy, I believe that most Christians would respond, yeah, I mean, you would go to hell in that scenario. Now, I know this is a hypothetical scenario, but in my lifetime, I have found that this is what the majority of Christians believe. And for a significant portion of my life, I personally believe this. According to this theology, you can learn to love your enemies you can sell all your possessions, and you can give all your money to the poor. You can bring about peace when there are rumors of war, and you can secure justice to flow like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. But if on your deathbed you think, I'm not sure God is actually good, and then you die without any other conscious thought, then God would overlook the work of your entire life and say, phew, that was a close one. I almost let that sinner into heaven. 
These ideas tell us what Christians believe when it comes to the second coming of Christ, the judgment day, and the eternal destiny of human beings. In my experience in the church, we were constantly taught that your last thought will be the only thing that matters to God. And if on your deathbed you suddenly believed that God was good and alive and forgiving, then you could be saved no matter how many people you murdered during your lifetime. Conversely, if on your deathbed you suddenly held a thought of doubt and questioned God's existence, then God will permanently ban you from entering heaven and your loved ones will live in eternity separated from you. If this sounds extreme, then understand that this theology is directly tied to the dominant narrative of Christianity. This narrative tells us that we are sinful and we need to hold on to our faith to the bitter end in order to be saved. Because this theology of the last thought is prevalent in Christianity today, we assume that when we take a closer look at the death of Jesus Christ, we will see a perfect example of how we can hold on to our faith in the face of death. This example can serve as a roadmap for us to know how to hold on to a faithful mindset all the way to the end. So let's look at Mark's gospel and see how we should hold on to our faith and ensure our entry into heaven. We read, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to Jesus to drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And after reading that portion of the gospel, I only have one word. Wow. I mean, wow. And in case you missed it from the previous two times, allow me to say again. Wow. <laughs> Jesus' last words on the cross, according to the gospel of Mark, are my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a statement of faith. This is a statement of doubt. And this is the last statement of Jesus before he dies. In other words, when the church tells us that we must remain faithful in the face of death to get into heaven, then that same church is telling Jesus Christ that he didn't make the cut. The church teaches a rule for who gets in and who gets left out of heaven. And by that very rule, Jesus would be left out of heaven. Now, I can't believe I have to say this, but if you have a rule to help you determine who gets into heaven and that rule excludes Jesus Christ from getting into heaven, then you have a bad rule and you should immediately light that rule on fire. Jesus dies on the cross with a testimony that God abandoned him. Now it's here that Christians may object and say, uh, I, I thought Jesus' last words were, it is finished. To that objection, I would say, you're right. 
According to one of the Gospels, Jesus' last words are, it is finished. But not all of the Gospels record that. Because in the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus' last words are not a question of why God forsook him, but instead a statement of unshakable faith in God's overarching plan. We read, when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. While Mark records only one statement from Jesus on the cross, John tells us about three different statements from Jesus on the cross. And the last of these statements, according to John, is it is finished. Neither of the other two statements in John's gospel remotely sound like Jesus questioning God's existence, like the question that Jesus asks in Mark's gospel. So here you have the gospel of Mark and the gospel of John, both telling us about the crucifixion of Jesus. But between their historical accounts, there is an irreconcilable contradiction in what Jesus said and what Jesus believed on the cross. While this contradiction may not seem like a big deal, we need to remember that Christianity in America holds a strong belief that the last conscious thought of a human life determines that human being's eternal destiny. Did Jesus abandon the faith and ask, why have you forsaken me? Or did Jesus hold on to his faith by seeing his execution as part of God's larger plan? Fortunately, or unfortunately, based on your perspective, we have two other gospels to help clear things up so that we can get to the bottom of what Jesus actually said on the cross. If we turn to the gospel of Luke, we find that Jesus offers three statements from the cross, just like John's gospel. However, all three of Christ's statements in Luke's gospel are different than the three statements in John's gospel. Let's read about the last of these three statements. We read, Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, Jesus breathed his last. Well, Luke's account doesn't really help us. Rather than affirming the words of Jesus in Mark's gospel or in John's gospel, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus said entirely different things than both of the other two gospels. Now, a Christian could point out that Jesus' last words in Luke are, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, and that this statement is a faith-affirming statement in the same vein as John's gospel. So this Christian could say, see, two out of three gospels record Jesus holding on to his faith even in the face of death. We are meant to follow his example and to do the same. And then Christians hope that we will ignore the troubling record of Mark's gospel where Jesus dies filled with doubt. However, there is a fourth record of the death of Jesus, the gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, just like Mark, records only one statement from the mouth of Jesus while he is on the cross. We read from the Gospel of Matthew, And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A few verses later, Matthew writes, Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last.
Matthew's record of Christ's death is nearly a word-for-word copy of Mark's gospel. And Matthew sides with Mark. He tells us that Jesus died with a heart filled with doubt. Here we have four different people attempting to tell us what really happened at the crucifixion of Jesus. Between these four gospels, we have three differing historical accounts of what Jesus said on the cross. Luke and John tell us that Jesus held on to his faith until the end, while Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus let go of his faith at the very end. Now, the way that Christians have dealt with these stark differences is they resolve all of the contradictions between the Gospels by synthesizing the four Gospels into one cohesive story. This is why movies about the life and then crucifixion of Jesus often include all seven of the statements on the cross from all of the Gospels in one crucifixion scene. So in movies, when Jesus is on the cross, he both asks the question of doubt, why have you forsaken me? And also says the statement of faith, it is finished. Even though none of the gospels record Jesus saying both of these things. Additionally, None of the Christian movies I have ever seen about the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus with his question, why have you forsaken me? Instead, every movie I can remember depicts Jesus' last words as, it is finished. And when we end the movies of the crucifixion with this statement, then we must acknowledge that these endings are the near opposite of what Mark's gospel records. So which is it? What were the actual final words of Jesus on the cross? Because we're trying to figure out whether Jesus died as a tried and true believer, or if Jesus relented his faith and became an atheist shortly before his own death. And considering the eternal emphasis that the modern church places on the last conscious thought of a human being before they die, this becomes a rather urgent question. And if John's account is correct, then the church can maintain the status quo and continue to tell the world that the most important action of anyone's life is their last conscious thought before death. But if Mark's account is correct, then the whole last thought theology unravels rather quickly, doesn't it? So what were the actual final words of Jesus on the cross? The most honest answer to this question that I can give you is... We don't know. There are no video recordings of Jesus' crucifixion. We can't go speak to witnesses who were there. And even if we could, the chances are these witnesses would all remember Jesus saying different things. We can't go to the official Roman transcript where a stenographer recorded the last words of the crucified because such a document does not exist. Now, Mark's gospel is more likely than John's gospel to be historically accurate because Mark wrote his gospel 40 years before John. However, we need to remember that Mark wrote his gospel around 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. It's highly possible that Mark got the last words of Jesus wrong. We don't know the last words of Jesus on the cross, and I do not believe that we will ever know during our lifetimes. But there is something we do know that people who study the Bible do not acknowledge often enough. 
The thing that we do know is that all four authors intended for their respective gospel to be read on its own. Allow me to explain. When Mark wrote his gospel, he never comprehended the idea that one day his words would sit sandwiched between Matthew and Luke's gospel as part of a Bible. Rather, Mark wrote his gospel because he wanted to tell the world about Jesus Christ. So he included all of the pieces that he considered to be essential to understanding this person. Sometime later, Matthew and Luke sat down in two separate places. They both most likely read a copy of Mark's gospel and thought, nice try, Mark, but I think you're missing a few things. And both of them composed their gospel with what they believed Mark missed and what was essential to understand the life of Jesus. They also left some things out that Mark included. Decades later, John sat down to write his gospel with who knows what kind of source material, and he included everything that he believed to be foundational to the understanding of who Jesus was. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all wrote their gospels, hoping that people would read their gospels on their own and build their lives around the good news of Jesus. 200 years later, the Christian church started holding a massive amount of committee meetings to try and formalize the Christian faith. Some of these committee meetings resulted in people listing books that were recognized by the church as a sort of New Testament about God. In those lists, the church did not offer one, but instead four gospel accounts about the life of Jesus Christ. These gospels were never intended to be part of the same collection, and they possess conflicting accounts, rampant contradictions, and differing records about the things like the last words of Christ on the cross. This was the first time that these four gospels were placed next to each other, and this occurred two centuries after they were written. I tell you all of this because we need to remember that each gospel author intended for his work to be read on its own. Therefore, the best way to understand how Jesus Christ inspired each author is to draw imaginary walls around each of the Gospels. These walls ask us to read each Gospel from beginning to end without jumping to another Gospel. That way, when I read the Gospel of Mark from the beginning to the end, I can more fully understand what Mark was trying to tell me about Jesus. Because in Mark's mind, he included everything that needed to be included to understand Jesus. From there, I can read each of the other Gospels from beginning to end and then begin to form a composite image of Christ while also keeping the unique perspectives of the Gospel writers separate. This may all sound a bit heady in the theological department, but let me show you how this works. Suppose a Christian tells me about heaven and makes the claim, if you don't believe in God when you die, then there is no way you are going to get to heaven. I can respond by saying, well, Mark would definitely disagree with that assessment. Because when Mark tells us the story of Jesus, he tells us the story of Jesus on the cross and he loses all sense of any religious grounding. A moment when Jesus feels that all of the things he's been taught about the goodness of God is a lie. And who can blame Jesus for feeling all of those things? 
The suffering is so excruciating that it causes Jesus to fully doubt whether anything can be good in this life. So he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he takes one last breath. And then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dies. What I find to be striking about Mark's portrait of Jesus is the unfiltered version of his suffering. In Mark's gospel, Jesus does not believe in a higher purpose for his death, but instead worries that he is dying in vain. In Mark's gospel, Jesus does not reassure the others who see him on the cross by telling them, it's okay that I'm suffering. Rather, Jesus questions if God is listening to his cries and wonders if God is actually good. In Mark's gospel, Jesus dies with a troubling question on his lips rather than offering us an easy solution to explain away the pain he felt. And when we jump over to John's gospel and steal the band-aid of the faith-affirming statement, it is finished, and slap that band-aid on Mark's gospel, at that moment what we are doing is we are silencing the suffering of Jesus in order to make ourselves more comfortable. And so we convince ourselves that the actual last words of Jesus were in fact, it is finished. Because that statement helps us to avoid the pain, the agony, and the frightening reality of the crucifixion of Jesus. We do this because the crucifixion makes us deeply uncomfortable. And Mark's gospel asks us to sit with that discomfort. While John's gospel glosses over that discomfort and even in Christ's death, begins to point to the resurrection. It is finished is a comfort statement designed as a theological band-aid to mask the darkness of the cross. My friends, how often do we give answers to why another suffers so that we can be comfortable with their suffering? This is a natural tendency of human beings because we don't like to sit with the suffering that is around us. This suffering makes us uncomfortable. This suffering causes us to doubt. This suffering triggers sadness. And I've seen this firsthand as Christians refuse to sit with the suffering of Jesus on the cross by insisting that Christ's last words were, it is finished. I've heard so many Christians tell me with great confidence why Jesus had to die. They can explain over and over again how this crucifixion of the Son of God is a good thing. But if we were there, witnessing this tortuous execution in the flesh, do you really think we would respond by saying, Hallelujah? Do you really think that we would start singing a praise song in the face of Jesus on the cross? Do you really think we would witness this death and then completely forget about it on Sunday? I don't think so. Mark's gospel is an urgent request for all of us to drop our easy answers that attempt to explain the death of Jesus. And instead, Mark's gospel invites us to sit at the foot of the cross in all of our discomfort and pain and question the very existence of God. My friends, we need to have more faith in the death of God. Plenty of Christians believe in the resurrection of God, but I have found that very few Christians believe 
in the death of God. The death of God is when we stop giving answers for why we are suffering. Instead, we create space for us to sit with our discomfort, with our pain, with our questions, and with our uncertainties. And while this may sound like I'm asking you to give up your belief in the resurrection of God so that you can believe in the death of God, we have found at this church that it's better when you can believe in both the death and the resurrection of God. This paradox allows you to create spaces where you can work for the betterment of humanity and also to create spaces where you can sit in compassion with each other and acknowledge the pain that we are experiencing. Author Layla F. Saad wrote about this recently on her blog. In this post, she spoke about all of the sadness and pain that she found difficult to process. This suffering included the continual rise of violence against Asian Americans, the anniversary of Breonna Taylor's murder, the murder of Sarah Everard, and the global pandemic's relentless death toll. In this post, Leila Saad wrote, This is a lot. Can we just sit with that? That this is a lot? Not spiraling into hopelessness, but also not trying to fabricate a sense of shallow hope or toxic positivity that masks the fact that all of this is so very hard. What beautiful words. Leila Saad talks about how we must work to mitigate suffering but how we also must create spaces that allow people to sit with their suffering. These spaces are what will help us avoid shallow hope and toxic positivity. This is the kind of space that exists in Mark 15, when Jesus Christ questions the existence of God in the face of death. Next Friday, Christians around the world will remember the crucifixion of Christ in a day that we refer to as Good Friday. Since the beginning of our church's history, Paradox participates in Good Friday with an evening service that we call Doubt Night. In an effort to honor the crucifixion and Christ's last words in Matthew and Mark, we invite people from the congregation to share their doubts, unfiltered and unfettered, to bring the question, why have you forsaken me, to life. Doubt Night existed as a space for us to sit with the suffering that we are experiencing and avoid the temptation to give others answers for our own comfort. This year is both the same and different for Good Friday. For the first time in our church's history, we have been invited to participate in an ecumenical service with six other churches here from Redlands. This service will stream on our Facebook and YouTube pages for Paradox, and will include the lead pastor from each church speaking on one of the seven statements of Jesus from the cross. Paradox was asked to participate in the service for the first time, and we gladly accepted. We are honored and looking forward to remembering the cross with Christians from Redlands across seven different denominations, and we would love for you to join us at 6 o'clock on Friday night, April 2. Later that evening, however, we will still have Doubt Night. And this year we are calling Doubt Night Campfire Lamentations. This service will stream at 8.30 p.m. on Friday night on our media pages. Now I have to tell you, we recorded this service two weeks ago and the content 
is moving. Holly, Pablo, Pastor Mandy, and I speak openly about what is troubling us. Maddie and Joe lead with unflinching songs of lamentation, and Hillary shares anonymous doubts from our congregation. And while this content is moving, this content is also the furthest that we have ever pushed the service of Doubt Night. Some may question why we are doing this. We are doing this because Paradox experienced the most tragic year of our church's history in 2020. This service is meant to serve as a space where we can look at each other and say, this is a lot. And rather than trying to offer answers or solutions or quick fixes to our problems, we hope that you can come and sit by the virtual fire and sit with your doubts and the doubts of others. My hope is that we can resist the temptation to offer easy answers for the night that we remember the crucifixion. My hope is that we can sit with our discomfort to fully honor the death of Jesus. My hope is that we can listen to each other, not as amateur therapists who believe that we can help, but instead as friends who suffer alongside one another. We do all of this in an effort to silence toxic positivity, to eradicate shallow hope, and to remember the unspeakable tragedy of the death of God. My friends, may we have faith in the death of God. May you find a home here at Paradox to come and sit by the fire, to share your doubt, and to realize that you are not alone when you experience the death of God. To realize that you are not alone when you cannot believe. To realize that you are not alone when you suffer. And may we have the honesty to see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, even in the moments when we ask the heavens, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?